law allow people to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay taxes or not? Well, since Jesus recognized their deceit, he said to them, Why are you testing me? Bring me a coin. Show it to me. And they brought one. He said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus said to them, Give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, and to God what belongs to God. His reply left them overcome with wonder. The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Deb. For our guests this morning, this is the third week of a message series that we've entitled Selfies. We're looking at how we often see ourselves in various ways versus how God sees us and comparing some of those. And we're using kind of the modern craze known as selfies as our backdrop of that. For so often we see ourselves in certain ways. Matter of fact, if you take an opportunity to look at the back of your worship guide, you'll see a couple of the selfies that we took uh, the first week. If you remember, we took a couple of pictures during worship and Jessica was kind enough to put those on the back side of your worship guide for this week. When we began this conversation, we, we started out by talking about how we see ourselves so often as broken, and we live into that brokenness, but yet God sees us through the picture of our wholeness and how we can live into that. Last week, we considered the selfie of doubt versus faith, and this week we're going to look at it from the aspect of how we are sometimes willful and sometimes yielding, how often we see ourselves in our free will Versus how God sees us as ones who could yield to a different way of life. I think one of the consequences of God granting us human free will is is that we can be willful in that. Meaning that we might be bent towards determining our own direction in life. We ignore the still small voice of God that prompts us because... In yielding to that still small voice, we all of a sudden find ourselves out of control of what we're doing. And and few, if any of us, really like being out of control of our own lives. And so sometimes we're willful in not listening to God. We don't want to yield to what God desires for us. Now I find it fascinating in our culture, we like iron-willed people. We like people with a strong iron will, the ones that persevere, the ones who are confident and sure in the direction that they are going. They are people who don't need a lot of consultation. They know what's best in life. They have charted a course and they are marching right along. They are driven towards success in their lives. We like these strong iron-willed adult images. We may even admire them. But how many of us like strong-willed children? Any of you? Right? No? No hands raised? Some of us like the challenge of a strong-willed child, maybe. You know, you you think about it. I I know none of you were ever strong-willed children, especially the younger crowd, right? You were all perfect children. None of you have raised strong-willed children. But we all probably have met somewhere along the line someone who had a strong-willed child. 
I remember in the in the 80s when I was in, in Crete, Greece, there was a young family that I met and came across. And they were a, a young couple that had married. She had a, a child from a previous marriage, a little boy. He was about three at the time. His name was Drew. And, and Drew was one of those that was bent on doing anything other than what his mom and stepdad said. Right? He was a strong-willed little boy. He was cute. He was a good-looking little boy. Man, his parents would ask him to do something. They would politely, lovingly try to nurture him along to do something, and he would literally do the exact opposite thing. So then they'd get a little bit more, you know, aggressive with him, and they would try to take a firm stand with him, and he would take an even further stand, you know, strong stand against whatever mom and stepdad wanted him to do. He just had that strong nature that strong will. And you could see the dynamic of struggle in the family of trying to raise a young kid that had such a strong will. In the Kansas City Star online this week, there was an article that was written. I posted it to Facebook. I, or actually, I shared it. And, and some of you might have seen that, that, that posting. The title of the article was Why Kids Today Are Out of Shape, Disrespectful, and In Charge. What an interesting title for an article. You know, and I, I actually think I said it might get a mention today. Well, it's going to get a little bit more than just a mention, right? It's written by an actual family physician and psychologist, a gentleman by the name of Leonard Sachs. He's been in practice for about 27 years, and he's written four different books. And his last book was titled The Collapsing of Parenting. The collapse of parenting in our culture. He claims that parents are no longer taking on the challenge of trying to protect their kids from what is classified as the noise in our society. All the, that's going on in the culture around us. We're not doing a very good job of protecting our kids from it. And he gives a couple of examples of this. He said number one is, is the cell phone in the bedroom. I don't know how many of you are yet to that age where you have a 10, 12, 14, 16-year-old who has their own cell phone. At night, where is it? For the most part, and in many of our homes, it's in our youth's bedroom. And actually, there was a study in October of 2013 and a set of guidelines that were released by the American Academy of Pediatrics that said that what parents should do is set the parameter of the phone not being in the bedroom at night that you charge it in the kitchen or somewhere else because kids are attached to their phones and they're too easily distracted and are on the phone at all hours of the night, which interferes with rest and the sleep that they need. So the phones shouldn't be in their bedrooms, and we as parents should take that up as a challenge. The, the value of a daily meal as a family is one of those other areas, he says, that is missing as well. That we have the opportunity to sit down over a meal as a family and that we have no distractions during the meal. No television, no internet, no phones, no computers. But yet yeah, we just have conversation one with another. And that parents should craft that space. But how often do we? Do we find ourselves too busy in the noise? 
He said the other place that parents should try to figure out how to do this as well is in the car. How many of us, our kids get in the car, the first thing they do is put in their earbuds or put on their headset. They're watching either a video or they're listening to something on their iPod. And we miss the opportunity for conversation and finding out what's going on with their day. If you choose to chaperone and chauffeur your children, use that as an opportunity to also engage in their lives. He says there's so much noise that we miss the opportunities. And because we miss the opportunities, our kids' will is being shaped by something else. It's being shaped by our culture. And so often, he says, us parents, we don't do this because we feel powerless to demand things of our kids. You've heard the old phrase, right? The inmates are beginning to run the asylum. You know? That for some of us as parents, we feel as if we have lost control over some of these things. I'll be honest with you. Uh, Margaret and I, we're in the same boat with you guys, all right? Those of you who find yourself maybe in this circumstance as well. I I should share with you our our six-year-old grandson's Christmas wish list, all right? Here's the things that DJ... How many of you have ever met DJ? There's a good number of you have met DJ, This will not surprise you, his Christmas wish list, right? Number one on his list was a PlayStation 4. Number two on his list was a pewter, which stands for a computer. He hasn't quite figured out how to say the whole word yet, but a pewter. He wanted a computer, and then he wanted an iPhone 6, right? Not just a cell phone, he wanted an iPhone 6, what six-year-old needs an iPhone 6, right, is what you're thinking. But, but even for us in our own life, we struggle with these kinds of things of making that space in our lives so that we can compress some of the noise that is going on for other things to emerge, to teach simplicity and humility, to teach what it means to love and serve God more than you serve yourself. How we all find that kind of space above and beyond the noise. If you consider the story that was read for us today, Jesus adeptly cuts through the noise of his willful rivals to teach them what it means to listen and ultimately yield to God. That's what transpires in this simple little story. You know, it's interesting when you read through the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this is not the only moment in the Gospels where Jesus has a set of opponents who come and try to trip up his ministry. A group of people who want to come and mitigate him. They want to suppress his story and his ministry. They want to discount him and disregard him so much that he's no longer effective in what he's doing. Actually, in the Gospels, there's about 20 different stories where these opponents show up and actively try to figure out how to destroy Jesus' ministry. This is one of them. They are confrontations that have people from all kinds of perspectives through the life and the community. They are people of power and of privilege. They are people who are on the religious perspective to the cultural perspective. And that's the Pharisees and the Herodians in this story. When you read in the story, in the kind of the rabbinic tradition, they read for what's called the black fire and the white fire. They read the words that are written and then they read between the lines of what's not there. I want to share with you a little bit of the white fire of this story. Some things that we miss out on because we don't understand it very well. 
These Pharisees and Herodians come to Jesus and their basic noise is the noise of flattery. They say to Jesus, teacher, genuine without worry, who doesn't show favoritism but teaches God's way only. They figured if they could flatter Jesus enough, assage his ego enough, that he would probably trip up in his answer, that he wouldn't consider his answer very well, and it would be an unguarded answer to a question. And the question was, does our law, does the law of Moses permit someone to pay taxes? Or do we get out of this? Now here's the white fire. The Pharisees make the perfect religious witness because if Jesus says that, yes, it is okay for us to pay taxes, then he is teaching a heretical thing in their culture. We're not supposed to possess anything that has an image of a false god, and a coin would do that. And so if he says, yes, pay your taxes, they would say that it is a heresy. The Herodians make the other perfect witness because for them, if Jesus says, no, don't pay taxes, then he is seditious in his teachings. He's teaching against Rome. And so they think they've got this perfect combination between the two to trap Jesus in this moment. And no matter what answer he gives, they're going to be able to discount, disregard, and ultimately end his ministry and his message. That's what they want to do. But yet, what does Jesus do? Jesus cuts through the noise of their flattery and their question, and he says to them, who has a coin? Show it to me. And when he does, he says to them, what image is on this coin, and what's the inscription on it? The image on the coin would have that at that time been the image of Tiberius Augustus Caesar. He was the current Caesar of the day. And on the coin, it would have said these words, Son of the Divine Augustus. See, here's the trap that Jesus laid for the Pharisees and the Herodians. If the Pharisees produced the coin, they just produced a false idol. It would have been embarrassing for them to have that coin in their pocket because the law says that you're not supposed to possess an idol. And a coin with Caesar's image on it and the word son of the divine made it an idol. So he lays the trap for the Pharisees to see if they produce the coin. For the Herodians, it would have been just as embarrassing for them to pull a coin out of the pocket because it demonstrated that they were aligned with Rome and its system of taxation. That they had given themselves over to the power of the culture and the elite to tax people and spread that wealth, that taxation among themselves, the wealthy and the elite. That they would oppress the peasantry even more for their own gain. And so Jesus lays the trap for both of them in asking for a coin. And then he says, whose image is on it? I I think you had it pretty close to right, Deb, in your understanding of how you read that. They said, Caesar. How many of you have ever trapped your kids in a lie and you ask them for the answer to the question? What do they usually do? They mumble the answer, right? Put your head down like this. I got caught. I can imagine that's what the Pharisees and the Herodians did in this moment. As Jesus said, whose image is on this? They gave the shortest possible answer. Caesar. 
Then Jesus says to them, So give to Caesar what is Caesar's. Give to God what is God's. The coin that bears the image of Caesar, pay your taxes with it. That denarius, give it to Caesar. Pay your taxes, but give to God what is God's. And in the understanding of the community, what bears the image of God? Thank you, Marie. Each one of us. We are all created in the image of God. It was a teaching that was versatile even in Jesus' day and age. They would have understood that they were created in the image of God and they were to give themselves to God. That's what it meant to yield in that day. Jesus cuts through the noise to remind his challengers that they should be yielding themselves to God instead of distracting everyone with the noise of their religion and their culture. God was not impressed with their strict keeping of the law, nor was God impressed with their yielding and their peace that they had created with their oppressors. Yielding meant something else. It meant giving themselves to God. Being able to listen for the still, small voice of God. I'm going to suggest to you today, dear friends, that we need to create that space in our own lives so that we might be able to yield. And that's going to be Figuring out how to cut down the noise of our world and our lives so that we might be able to listen for the still, small voice of God in each one of us. To go back to some of the things that the good doctor said, yes, to to have that time that is very quiet. And One of the things that's interesting in some of the studies, they say that when you get ready to go to bed, you should figure out how to turn your TV and your cell phone off 15 to 30 minutes before you turn the lights out to try to go to sleep. That your brain needs that kind of time to literally shut down from all the blue elements and the color of the screen so that you can rest and get the rest that you need. To be able to also have that space in your bedroom that is quiet and uninterrupted without your phone or your TV. To make sure that your kids don't have a phone or TV in their room. To have the quiet time at dinner. I thought it was funny, uh, one of my... um, colleagues in ministry was doing a devotion this week at the Board of Ordained Ministry meeting that I was at, and, and, and he had to remind us pastor types in the middle of his devotion to put away our cell phones, you know, to take an opportunity to just simply lay them down and find the space to listen in the devotion. He asked the question, and you probably have seen this before yourselves, you ever been in a restaurant where a family of four comes in and they sit down? What's the first thing all of them usually do? Pull out their phones. And all four of them start engaging. And he says, before you know it, your table of four is now a table of eight, twelve, sixteen. You've got all these extra guests at the table. But how do we find ourselves creating that kind of margin to hear the voice of God? Denny, of course, if she was here and I asked her and gave her the podium, she would give you a a group of other suggestions like meditation, centering prayers, silence, going on a walk in nature. All of these are ways in which we can suppress the noise of our lives and find this silence, this space to be able to listen for the voice of God. And I think that's an admirable goal for all of us, to find that kind of space. So that we might hear what it is that God demands of us, wants of us. 
You think of things like this. Micah says, What does the Lord, the God, Lord our God require of us but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly before God? Jesus was asked what it meant to yield to God. He described it this way. He said, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, your mind, your soul, your strength, and love your neighbor as you love yourself. To hear the still small voice of God prompting us each and every day in these ways, and in the ways in which it intersects with the lives of those around us. My father-in-law recently gave me a, a book. It's a, it's a neat little book I've started reading. It's called Rediscover Jesus, an Invitation, written by Matthew Kelly. It's short little pericopes, which means short little stories that are individual segments read alone that tell something of how people are rediscovering Jesus in their lives and in their world. I'm going to invite you to a little simple exercise. This is a dangerous exercise. I'm going to invite you to close your eyes and hope that you don't fall asleep while I read a short story. All right? But take a moment just simply to close your eyes with me and listen to this story and see if you can't imagine what transpires in this short, simple little story. So close your eyes for a moment and listen. It was the biggest meeting of Paul's life, and it had gone well. He couldn't wait to tell his wife and his boss. As he rushed out of the Brooklyn office building with the rest of his team, they noticed a vacant cab, which was a rare sight during rush hour. Eager to get to the airport to catch their flight home, they bolted toward the cab, yelling to get the driver's attention. But as they made their way across the sidewalk, they inadvertently knocked over a small produce stand. The rest of the team seemed oblivious until Paul stopped and turned around to go back. From beside the taxi, the others called out to Paul, Come on! You're going to miss your flight! Go ahead without me, Paul replied, as he made his way back across the street toward the sidewalk covered in produce. At that moment, Paul realized that the woman who had been behind the produce stand was blind. She was just standing there crying softly with tears running down her face. It's okay, it's okay. Paul said this to her as he got down on his hands and knees and began picking up the fruit and vegetables. There were a hundred people passing in every direction, but nobody else stopped to help. They just scurried off to wherever they were going. When the fruit was all back up on the stand, Paul began neatly organizing it, setting aside anything that was spoiled. And then he turned to the woman and asked, Are you okay? She nodded through her tears. Then he reached into his wallet, he took out some money, and he passed it to her and said, This should cover all of your damages. And with that, Paul turned and he began to walk away. Mister, the woman called after him. Paul paused and turned around. Are you Jesus? Oh no, he replied. The woman nodded and continued, I only asked because I prayed for Jesus to help me as I heard my fruit falling all over the sidewalk. Paul turned to leave again. But only now his eyes began to fill with tears. 
For a long time, he wandered around looking for a taxi, and after finding one, he sat in bumper-to-bumper traffic all the way to the airport. Of course, he missed his flight, and because it was Friday night, all the other flights were full. So Paul spent the night in a hotel by the airport. This gave him ample time to think, and he couldn't get one question out of his head. When was the last some, last time someone confused me for Jesus? Maybe what we need to consider this morning, dear friends, is simply this. Is the noise of our lives so loud that it's preventing us from hearing the still, small voice of God? Is the noise of life so prevalent that it keeps us from yielding? Here's what I hope you take away from this moment, a couple of things that you can just simply kind of hang on to for today in your conversations. To be reminded that there are many moments in our lives where we have a tendency to be a willful kind of people. The noise is so loud, we couldn't hear the voice of God if we tried. But Jesus cuts through the noise of the opponents of his day, the noise that was going on around him, to expose the willfulness of many of us. And the simple ways in which we need to just find the space to hear the voice of God, to give to God what is God's, which is ourselves. And that each and every one of us need to take up that challenge as well, to create the space in our own lives, to create the distance from the noise around us, so that we might draw nearer to the one who loves us. So here's your invitation this week. Maybe some opportunities to try to practice this in in your own life. Maybe to think about dinner. And it might be impossible to have seven straight nights of dinner at home. But practice this maybe one, two, or three nights this week. Where it's just you and the family minus all the distractions. Everything else that creates noise. Let it just be your noise. The noise of your family as you converse together. For us adults, as parents, maybe to take the opportunity to implement one thing that we know we need to exercise control over with our youth, our kids, so that it might be for their betterment, so that we might suppress some of the noise in their lives. And finally, for all of us to create time, time for meditation, silence, time to listen to what God is saying through that still, small voice. And maybe through some of these practices, we'll be able to hear God calling all of us to practice justice, to be people who are kind and humble, to be people who are learning to love God more fully in our lives, and that we're taking that out to our neighborhoods to share it with the people that are next door to us. Would you join me now in a moment of prayer? So gracious and holy God, as we come before you in this moment, we give you thanks and praise. Most of all, for your patience with us. We hear the opportunity for every single one of us to create that kind of margin and space that we need in our homes and in our personal lives. The places where we can suppress the noise around us and maybe hear your still small voice. Lord, we hear the commands. We know that we are to be a people of justice and kindness and humility. 
that you have invited us to love you fully and to love our neighbor equally. But Lord, we need to find the practices that will help us to live into this. So we pray, O God, through the power of your Spirit, that you might begin to form and shape us, that you might help us and assist us in this endeavor in our lives. For we know that through it, only your will and your good will come. So we pray all these things in the power and in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.